from the Gospel of Matthew. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, and Happy New Year. No, I did not get the holiday wrong. Uh, today is actually, as uh, Father Rodriguez mentioned last weekend, today is actually the first day of the Christian New Year. And so, Happy New Year. It's the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, Advent comes, as you know, from the Latin Adventus, and it means coming. And therefore, Advent is a time of preparation. Now, if you've entered into this busy season like I have, you will say, yes, no duh, it's a time of preparation. I have 24 days until Christmas. I've got my Christmas shopping list that I have to write, my tight December budget to fulfill those lists, my house decoration to-do list, scheduling and coordinating family trips, stealing myself for those family interactions. Didn't we just see them on Thanksgiving? Uh, all while trying to participate in as many social and festive events as possible. And you know that your schedules are packed. And we're all trying to do this while we're remembering why we loved Christmas in the first place as a child. You know, if, if your mind just went to that with preparation, all the things that I have to do, or if I just kind of propelled you that way, uh, and you started thinking through your to-do list, just, just pause for a second and come back, because I want to talk about what Christians mean by the season of Advent, what Christians mean by preparation, a season of preparation. And so we've got three points this morning. Uh, the first point is we're going to talk about the exact hour of Jesus' return. Point two, preparation for Jesus' return. How do we prepare? And point three, the meaning of Jesus' return for believers. The meaning of His return for believers. So the first point, the hour of Jesus' return. I've been doing a lot of work on this in the past two months, and I think I finally nailed down the exact date. Um, I'm not going crazy. I'm kidding. Look with me again at Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus again says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. Now, it's bizarre because in every age there are those authors, you know, seeking to sell books, and they say, well, I've looked at the star charts, and I'm looking at the political events of our time, and I've really discovered the secret codes in the Bible, and I can tell you exactly when Jesus is coming back. Well, Scripture disagrees with them. Uh, and so I would say we can't really know exactly when Jesus will return, and I believe that that's by design. The Bible is clear. We don't know and can't know when Jesus will return. But the problem with these so-called prophets is that each time they are wrong, the world becomes a little bit more cynical, doesn't it, about when Jesus is going to return. And we become as vulnerable as those poor village sheep after the third time the boy cried wolf. Didn't end well for them, did it? No. So I want us to be prepared. You know, we all live through end-time predictions in our age. I think the last one was, what, 2012? Maybe there was one more recent than that. But I would encourage you, don't let those false predictions make you cynical about the return of Jesus Christ. He is coming. He will come. Make no mistake, the world is going to end. 
And I feel like sometimes atheists do a better job of preparing for the end of the world than Christians do, and here's what I mean by that. They know that our earthly resources are finite. They know that at some point, the sun is going to burn out and that the universe may experience something called heat death. So they know, and they're trying to prepare by, you know, building spaceships that can help us colonize distant planets. You know, I mean, they, they have this sense and they're working towards it. But I feel like Christians actually exhibit far less effort, even though we know, we know that the world is going to come to an end, that the same God who created the entire world and the cosmos and everything in it, that same God is going to be the one who draws everything to a close, that the author of all things who wrote the first chapter will also write its conclusion. And yet we do, uh, in my experience, we do very little to prepare. I mean, how many of you woke up this morning and looked at that gorgeous sunrise coming out of the east, and the first thought on your mind was, maybe today is the day. Maybe today is the day. But that's that level of preparation and expectation that Scripture calls us to. That's that heart that God is asking us to exhibit for Him and desiring His return. Maybe today is the day to be prepared. This past week, I went and saw the movie Midway, and um, I'm actually a new convert to, uh, historic, uh, to uh, the history of warfare. Um, to, to, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. And so I went and saw this movie Midway, and it's about a famous World War II battle that... Um, you know, that took place in the Pacific. This was after the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, and they were looking to really solidify their positions in the Pacific, and so they desired to draw out our aircraft carriers so that they could take them out. And so in order to draw out our aircraft carriers, they decided to attack this little island called Midway. And if I get any of the details wrong, feel free to send me an email. I promise I'll read it. But to my recollection... They wanted to draw out our aircraft carriers, and they, they went to attack this Isle of Midway. Well, unbeknownst to them, our codebreakers found out exactly what they were going to do, what their game was. And so our Navy sent its ships up to the northeast position of where the Japanese were going to come down, lying in wait. They baited the trap. So as the Japanese were coming down to the Isle of Midway, some of our... Um, some of our fighters went in different directions, and our bombers went in different directions. And at one point, our, tor our, our, torpedo, um, air our torpedo craft get there first, and they fly low to the water to launch torpedoes at the ships. But there's nobody to defend them. And so you watch in this movie as all of these Japanese fighters descend down upon these torpedo uh, bombers, and they tear them to shreds. And in that movie, you think, well, all is lost. It's not a coordinated attack. We're not going to make it. And Yamamoto, the commander of the Japanese um, Navy in, in that uh, arena, was, was, was at the, on the bridge, and he was smiling to himself, you know, feeling confident, like, look at this. They've, they caught us by surprise, but we're taking care of it, and all hope seemed lost. But then it's, it's remarkable. The movie captures his expression perfectly when he hears the whine of a plane coming up from above him. And he looks curious and then concerned. And he rushes outside to sea, and our dive bombers, our American dive bombers, arrived at the perfect moment, the opportune time. And they swooped down upon the aircraft carriers of the Japanese. And because their fighters were busy at sea level dealing with our torpedo bombers, they came down and had the perfect opportunity to sink those carriers. And it was an incredible battle. In fact, it's known as the most stunning and decisive blow in the history of naval warfare 
It changed the entire arena of the, of the Pacific. Those bombers came at the perfect time, the opportune time, right when the battle seemed beyond hope of any recovery. And so, I want, to look, I want you to look with me again at our text in Romans 13, because as we consider Christ's return, this is the, manal, the manner in which the Bible describes it. Christ is coming at the opportune time, at the perfect moment. When everything seems dark and difficult and that things are not going well, Christ will come at the opportune moment. In Romans 13, 11, it says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. This word time here, this opportune moment. In Greek, there are two words for time. There's chronos, you know, chronology. You, you're familiar with that. It's this idea of um, time, like um, sequential time. So 9.30, 10 30, 11.30, by then my sermon should be done. You know, so it's that idea of sequential time. But this idea of kairos, which is the word that's used here in Greek, has to do with the perfect time, the perfect moment the precise time of Jesus' arrival, that, that, that Christ will come at the opportune time, but He has purposely concealed it from us. And I would guess that He did so in order that we would live lives of watchfulness and preparation, that we would live lives of anticipation and seeking His coming again, which brings us to our second point, the preparation for Jesus' return. So what does it mean when we as, as Christians talk about preparing for that day? What does it mean we talk about preparing for Christ's return? Well, let's make it simple. How many of you have ever had a spouse or a parent when you were younger leave to go to the grocery store and say, okay, I'm leaving. I want to see this house cleaned up by the time I get back. Anybody? Just happens to me? Okay, well, no, I'm kidding. But, but that is, that, that's that concept. That's that idea. You know what Paul's talking about. Or how many of you hosted Thanksgiving dinner this year? And you saw the clock ticking down, and you knew that guests were about to arrive, and so you're scrambling about cleaning and preparing for their arrival. Then you know what I'm talking about. Paul writes here, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. When he writes that, he's encouraging believers to take a hard look at their sin Everything that they're using to pull themselves away from God, anything that they would be using to separate themselves from Him and to deal with it without delay. Do not put off reconciling yourself with God until next year because that might not come. But so many of us are engaged in avoiding God because we're very content with the way that our lives are now. Scripture says, don't put off addressing your sin, rather take it seriously. You notice that we're wearing a different color today? Did everybody pick up on that? We're wearing blue for Advent, and it isn't because we decided to just do something different on a whim. It isn't because we really like the color. Um, it's because blue, just like purple in Lent, is a color that symbolizes repentance. This for us is a, is a penitential season. It is a time of repentance. It is a time of self-reflection. You know, when, all, when, when everyone else in the world and, and what, uh, are, are pursuing material things in order to try to grab happiness as quickly as they can, our Christian culture says during this time we are to go inward and to become introspective and reflective because we're not seeking temporary happiness. We're seeking a deep abiding joy 
that comes from experiencing the Lord in fullness. And so repentance is a, I mean, so Advent is a time of repentance and a profound wrestling with oneself. Look at Paul's list in Romans 13. It says, his list includes things like drunkenness, sexual immorality, quarreling, jealousy, but the list could go on, couldn't it? The list could go on and on and on. In fact, the passage in Romans, what's amazing about this passage is that there are some people that that it hits directly. Um, Father Rodriguez brought brought this up this morning, that this passage was incredibly potent to St. Augustine. This passage, in fact, is when he experienced his conversion, this exact passage. He was, you know, he had heard, he was in a garden, he had heard the voice of a child saying, take up and read, and it says his eyes fell on a scroll, and it was open to this passage, and it was a perfect description of everything he had been doing, everything he had been doing, and so his heart was pricked by the power of the Holy Spirit into repentance. I would encourage you, during this time, if you seek repentance, if you seek the Lord, God will bring things to your attention. The Holy Spirit will bring things to mind. And your things may not be the things that were on St. Augustine's list. They probably aren't. But when He does prick your conscience, I would encourage you, pay attention during the season of repentance. Go into those places with Him. Don't brush them off. Don't say, I'm going to deal with them next year, but enter into those and invite Christ in. Take your sins seriously because it will affect how you receive the Lord's return. It will affect how you receive the Lord's return. You know, like most kids growing up, when my dad was coming home from work, it was a, mo- a monumental occasion for us. Six o'clock would roll around, and we would be listening for his car in the driveway, and we'd hear his car roll up, and then we'd hear the door shut, And then we would hear him walk up our porch to the front door, and we would hear him pull out his keys, and he would, you know, jangle his keys as they hit the lock. And it was always a powerful moment for us when we were growing up. And if I had been really well-behaved that day, right, or if I had, you know, uh, drawn some great picture for him to put on the fridge, or I had some great story to tell him, I was beyond elated at the fact that he was coming home. But, you know where I'm going with this, but if I was not a good boy, and my mother had uttered those fateful words, just wait until your father gets home. I received that homecoming in an entirely different way, right? And you all know what I'm talking about. It was always worse than the punishment itself, that anticipation of his return. I tried to distract myself from it. I wasn't really looking forward to it or looking forward to receiving it. In that same way, the manner in which we now live, the manner in which we now pursue holiness, the manner in which we now pursue godly living will very much affect our hearts and their preparation to receive Him. You see, if we are still unrepentantly engaging in, as Paul writes, the works of darkness, then what's going to happen when God turns on the light? Are we going to be prepared to receive Him, or are we going to scatter and seek further darkness? You know, that's not God's heart for us. Uh, As you know, I'm a fairly new father. I've got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and you thought you were going to get a sermon without them being in it. Too bad. Um, But but as a father, right, as, as as a young father, one of life's greatest joys is when I come home from work, and I and I hear Asher my little one-year-old, his little pot belly, drop whatever he's playing with and run as fast as he can to the back door. 
And my heart as a father desires my children to receive me in that manner, to be excited for my return, to desire closeness with me. That's one of life's greatest joys. You know, and I imagine that that is God's heart for us. You know, not one of us has experienced God in His fullness. And we have no idea how incredible for Christians it's going to be when we are finally with Him. And because we're all broken and sinful, we live as if we're trying to hedge our bets. Does anybody else do this? You're like, I want to get as much fulfillment and enjoyment as I can out of the world while I'm here, but I also want to get as much fulfillment and joy I can out of heaven when I arrive there. And sometimes the route to those two things are very different. It's two different ways of living. But we hedge our bets because we can't comprehend what God has in store for us. Which brings us to our third and final point, the meaning of Jesus' return for believers. You know, when God comes, it's going to be an incredible, I mean, it's going to be awesome. And I don't mean that just in, in the positive sense of the word awesome, which is how we use it now. I mean awesome as in awful, awesome, awful, awful. Um, inspiring. It will, it, will, it will create us, it will completely transform everything that um, we've experienced up until this point. But for believers, there's going to be something incredibly joyful about it. Christ's return means an end to our suffering. You know, a holiday season is incredibly difficult for a lot of people. Um, one, you know, if you've lost someone the holiday season brings up their memory and their absence, and you feel a gaping hole. Holiday season brings up family conflict and seems to ramp it up because everyone is tense and anxious and on edge. There's a lot of things that get stirred up during the Advent season, but God's return, Christ's return, is going to mean an end to our suffering. As we see in Revelation 21, there will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain. God will bring about relief. He will bring healing. He will bring peace and end to all conflict. So I'd encourage you, if you're in the mud right now, if you're really wrestling, know that as painful and tumultuous as your life is, your suffering does not have the final say. That's not the end. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. Christ's return means an end to our suffering. But you know what? It means a great deal more than that. It means a great deal more than that. Because even as Christ returns changes how we view our present suffering, it also changes how we view our present joy. Just as our suffering is incomparable with the presence of Christ, so our joy is a pale comparison to what we'll experience in His presence. C.S. Lewis wrote this, in fact, in an in um, essay entitled The Weight of Glory, based on this passage. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The return of Christ is going to be a momentous occasion for Christians, for believers. I want you to, to stop for a second and consider the pinnacle moments of your life. What were those moments of your life 
that brought you the most joy, that were the most momentous occasions that you've experienced? Did you have a perfect family trip or holiday or feast? Did you have a moment of victory uh, in a sporting competition or in an event for school or even in a great achievement in your career, that crowning achievement that you can point to and remember back? Maybe the most momentous occasion of your life was when you were standing by the altar and you look out and you see your bride enter from the back of the church and everything slows down. Or maybe you as the bride searched out and locked eyes with your groom and everybody is looking at both of you to see how you'll react. Maybe that's the most momentous occasion. Or maybe it was the birth of your child. Maybe it was that moment through all the pain and suffering that you get to hold your new one in your arms. We all have experienced incredibly potent, memorable, momentous occasions of joy in our life. And you know what? These are the very moments that God uses to describe His coming to us. These very same images are but a shadow and a foretaste of what it will be like when Christ returns. In Revelation 2.17, it says that the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with their name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That white stone symbolizes victory for someone who is competing in the games, in the uh, Olympic games. And if you won, you got a stone, and it symbolized your entrance into the victory feast, into the great party and the great banquet. So no family vacation or celebration or feast that you've ever had will compare to the great feast that awaits us. Revelation 21, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. That moment, the bride and the groom connecting. But it isn't an earthly marriage. You are meeting face-to-face -face the one who has created you for himself. So I want to close with this. Our present joys are nothing in comparison to what God has in store for us. And so as we enter into this season of Advent, I want to encourage you to live in the hope of our future reality with him, to take your sins seriously, to wrestle with what you have going on so that you can look forward to his return, so that you can keep it in front of you and your eyes fixed on him. So let's close with these verses from Revelation. These are the final verses of the book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.